Okay, so once again, thank you for being here tonight. I want to welcome everybody and also those listening on, listening on our podcast channel. Now, a quick recap from two weeks ago, because I think last Wednesday we had our hymn night, and how awesome was that, right? I love that. Love that. So the, week, the Wednesday before that, we learned about how God desires to be with his people, and we enter his presence through his prescription and his design. Tonight, we're going to continue in the book of Exodus. We're going to be looking at uh, Exodus chapter 38. Okay? Now, as we've, as we've seen in previous chapters from Exodus, you may have remembered there's a lot of descriptions going on about the tabernacle, the altar, the wash basins, the incense, the area for burnt offering, the lampstands, the curtain. Remember all that kind of stuff? Lots and lots of stuff, right? And throughout those chapters, we see instructions on how those things are to be made. Everything from what materials are to be used, who is to build them, where they're to be placed in the tabernacle, who can be near them once they're in the tabernacle, right? Basically, instructions for everything all the way around, right? And, you know, in my brain, when I remember when I was reading and studying this much younger, I'm thinking, wow, that just seems like overkill. There's just a lot, just throughout the whole chapter, right? Do we need this much instruction? Does it matter that much? Why is this stuff so important? The tabernacle and the altar stuff, you know, and really deep down, those are good questions, right? Those questions actually get to the heart of why God is doing all this, right? The why is everything. And the answer to that why is that God, in this book, is laying the groundwork to repair the chasm that exists between him and his people, which is us, right? That's the heart of everything. That's That's what this is about. And what we read in Exodus regarding the tabernacle, the laws, are literally that groundwork. God is starting a process. This is the foundation for repairing our relationship with him, and this is very important. Now, one of the reasons God is so specific in his instructions regarding the tabernacle is because he knows how humans are. Just to be perfectly blunt, right? He knows how we behave. He knows how poorly we can uh, follow instructions, how impatient we can be, like how much we like to do whatever we want sometimes. And because of that, the process to bring us back into a right relationship to fix us is going to be a very long, detailed process because, well, it kind of needs to be, right? God has been dealing with humans for a while, and he knows that we come with our own problems. Here's a really good case in point. Genesis 2, verses 16 to 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, if you would, please leave that up there for a minute, that slide, Michelle. Everyone go with me for a moment, because I'm going to get very specific. What did God say to do, and what did he say to not do? Now, before you answer, Don't add to it. Don't try to interpret it. Don't go, hmm, that's interesting. What did he say to do? Eat from any tree in the garden, right? That's the first one. What did he say to not do? Don't eat from the one tree. Whether you get the name right, one tree, right? That's it. Does anybody, and what will happen if they do? They'll die. So it's serious. It's not like you're going to get poison ivy. You're going to die, right? Does everyone understand that? Is that vague? Right? No, right? Now, does anybody have a guess what happens? And if you know what happens in the story, don't tell your neighbor. 
Does anybody have, have a guess at what happens? What us humans do almost immediately after he says that? They eat from the tree they're not supposed to. And that's not all. How do you think they, Adam and Eve, responded when God asked them about them, when they got caught? Remember, once they got caught, he says, have, he just says plainly, have you eaten from the tree I told you not to? How do you think they responded? Let's look and let's find out. Genesis 3, verse 12. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave it to me and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, well, what is this you've done? The woman said, well, this, the serpent deceived me and then I ate it. So first off, who does, God, who, who does Adam blame? God. First, he blames God. The woman, I'm going to point to Kent. The one you put here, <laughs> let her remind you, you put her here. You made her from my side. After you made her, put her here. She gave me the fruit. So yes, she gave it to me and then I ate it. But first of all, you kind of two are responsible first. What about Eve? She blamed the serpent. So if you literally, and this is no joke, if you count up the number of people that were blamed before the two responsible took responsibility is how many? Three. God, Eve, and the serpent. then what happens to Adam and Eve? Does God give them a chance to kind of pick up the pieces and do a do-over? No. They're kicked from the Garden of Eden. And an angel with a flaming sword, I always think this is funny, not a regular sword, a flaming sword is placed at the entrance so they can never return. So then did Adam and Eve go out there and start a, happy, a family and have a happily ever after? No. What happened? They had two boys. What happened? One killed the other one. So humanity, those are just the first four people. Humanity's not off to a great start. All right? Now here's why this matters. When God created the world, he created the Garden of Eden, he put us there. He, he did it with the intention of us joining him in his creation. Not the other way around, where he put us there and then he lowered himself to kind of do what we do in this world that we kind of do whatever we want. The world was a gift. It was a way for us to meet him in a holy place and live according to his standards in a beautiful, perfect garden, right? Live together in communion. And when we proved, and we, because we can't just blame them, we do this too. When we proved that we can't do that, that we aren't going to live according to his rules, his standards, God kicked us out. But then he had a plan to bring us back to repair that relationship. And I'm going to cover a whole lot of stuff real quick. And to do that, it first started with a man named Abraham who just simply trusted God, just with faith. He went where God told him to go. There was no, he had no idea exactly where he was going or how long it would take to get there. Can you imagine telling your wife that? Listen, God told me we're moving. Okay, where? I don't know. He just said go that way. How long did it take to get there? I don't know. We're just going to. That's not always an easy discussion, right? But Abraham had faith, and they went. And that's what matters. It was his faith that made the difference. God chose to work through him and his descendants through faith. That's what this is based on. That's why these instructions for the tabernacle, the ark, the lampstands, the curtains, all that stuff, you name it, that's why they're so specific. First and foremost, it took faith to do what God wanted them to do to just follow him. It, it took faith 
to do it in the desert, right, all alone. They were a weak nation. They had just been freed from slavery, right? Remember, they weren't freed because they were really strong and had powerful allies, and the Pharaoh's like, we got to get rid of them. We're in trouble. God did that work, didn't he? God's the one that freed them. And once in the desert, they had no city walls for protection, right? They had no natural defenses like mountains, rugged terrain to slow down, terrain to slow down an enemy. They had no high places to get the elevated advantage and shoot down. And God yet, he told them to do what? Build a mobile temple to me. That's what I want you to do. Instead of building fortifications, walls, shields, and swords, I want you to build a curtain. I want you to build lampstands. I want you to build a wooden ark. I want you to build an altar for sacrifice. And I check, those things are not good in battle. They will not, a curtain will not protect you from an invading army, right? So to do that in the desert, all alone with no allies, let's be honest, it took quite a bit of faith, did it not? And trust. Remember, that's the kind of faith that God desires. He wants us to stand out from the rest of the world. Right? And think about it. What the Israelites were doing in the desert all alone would have looked crazy to other nations. I mean, why on earth are you not building some kind of a wall? A curtain's not going to stop anything. God wants his people to look and act differently out of faith, to follow him and to trust him. So this is why this is really cool. If you start to take a step back and look at this from a distance, following God into the desert, spending a lot of time on the tabernacle with very, very specific instructions using their limited resources took a lot of faith, real faith. So also I want to share the biblical definition of faith. It actually comes from the New Testament book of Hebrews, and it really, really applies here. Now, just for a time reference, the Israelites, we think they were freed from slavery in Egypt around 1300 B.C., give or take a little bit, right? Now, the book of Hebrews was written 1,300 years later, a little more than that. Huge difference between the two. But let's read Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So it took real faith to trust God and build exactly what he told them in the desert. To trust him. Even if they couldn't understand the reason, couldn't see the long game, they did it. So what was the purpose of the tabernacle? What's the why behind it? Well, the tabernacle was the place where God was going to dwell again with his people. Remember, what was lost in the Garden of Eden, God was going to try to build piece by piece here. Right? But here's where things get interesting. For instance, in the Garden of Eden, God created everything, did he? Huh? He did all the work, did it himself. Go back and read Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. You'll see God didn't tell Adam and Eve to build anything, did he? There's, no, there's not a description of Adam picking up a hammer, right? There's nothing. No tent, not a lean-to, not a house. God did all, everything. And now in Exodus, the Israelites are going to have to do their part through faith, and build something really, really intricate in the desert where God could then begin to dwell among them. So when you really start to see it from that angle, that's really, really kind of cool, but that's not all. What they were going to build, this tabernacle, even the physical layout was going to represent the process for them to get back close to God again, right? It's going to represent increasing levels of holiness required to get back to God. Here's a picture of what it may have looked like. The next slide. 
So here's the curtain going all around. Here's the uh, altar of sacrifice where they sacrifice animals. This is going to be the wash basin. We'll get into that. And inside of there is the Holy of Holies. Okay? Now, first, what do you notice that's different? I'm going to give you a hint from the Garden of Eden. There's no garden. There's, no, there's almost no vegetation, is there? What else do you see besides a garden? No garden. What's that? Yeah, no, no, no power. There's no angel with a flaming sword. There's no angel with a flaming sword preventing them from getting close to God. Before this, God took very specific, very dangerous, threatening steps to keep people away from him, right? Now, if you read every description of an angel, specifically the New Testament, how did people respond when they saw that angel? Because the angel always said, do not be afraid. How much more would they be afraid if he's got a sword in his hand, right? Those were unarmed. That's what God did. God is now laying the, the, front, the framework the, for something completely different. And there's no angel preventing them from approaching. But here's the key. It's a big one. The only thing now preventing humans from coming closer to God is our own sin. Our own sin. Each person has their own sin, something they own, they're responsible for, whether they admit it or not. In fact, it doesn't even matter how much sin you have. One little one or huge stuff. Before, God made steps to keep you away. Now that's changing. What we're seeing is God laying the groundwork for us to see, to, to know, to own, to reckon with, to struggle with our own sin. And the, only, and the way they're going to fix this is we're going to see is through faith. Faith to follow God's instructions perfectly. Now, not, now, following God's instruction perfectly not only applies to building the tabernacle, but it also applies to the laws he gave on Mount Sinai, right? Big time. We, humans were going to have to make real, solid, lasting changes outwardly and inwardly. God means business. So again, with the picture of the tabernacle, if you would leave it up there for a second, the general public, average people, everybody, can exist outside. That's like the safe area, in a way. Anybody can go there. That's where us humans hang out, right? In our normal, everyday, sinful lives, outside of there. But once you begin to approach the tabernacle, everything changes. Once you approach, go through the entrance, which is kind of over here, the first thing you encounter is the altar of sacrifice. The purpose of the sacrifice is that you must sin. You sinned. Someone or something is going to have to pay that penalty. And what happens is someone, something pays with its, with its life. That's a very steep price. And you'll notice it's not hidden. It's not inside the tent. It's right. Everyone's going to see it. You ever see someone butcher a large animal? That animal's already dead. This one's going to be alive. They're going to walk it up there. It's visible, it's difficult to see, it's shocking, and that's how it's supposed to be. But again, the setup fits the purpose. Your sin separates you from God. To get that far means you have admitted your own sin, or at least some of it, and you're making concrete steps to atone for it. You're not good yet, but it's a start. The next thing you encounter as you get closer is the basin for washing. And I want you, I'm going to read to you God's command regarding the wash basin from Exodus chapter 30. So it's Exodus 30, verses 18 to 21. He said, make a wash, excuse me, make a bronze basin 
with its bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of the meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Whenever they enter the tent of the meeting, they shall wash with water. So what? Also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash their hands and feet. So what? This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for generations to come. So the wash, wash basin, the bronze basin, was symbolic but very, very real regarding our sin. Every person, including the priests, even though they may have participated in the sacrifices for the altar, this altar of sacrifice a few feet in front of it, didn't matter. They're approaching a more holy area. What's required? More washing. They were still unable to meet God's holy standard. So the next step was literally to wash their hands and feet. And let's be honest, this really probably didn't have anything to do with bacteria or germs in all likelihood. This was ritual washing by a human who was approaching God. And this was a demonstration. You understood you were still sinful. You were still not worthy to fully approach God. This was just one more step in a bigger picture. So by washing their hands and feet, this was an outward sign of what they understood. Because God stated, if they didn't do that, what was going to happen? They would die. Can you imagine a steeper price to pay? So that's extremely important. Now I want to jump ahead a little bit to Exodus 38, uh, verse 8. And we're going to see where, it, where the Israelites, where they got the bronze to make that basin. Because it's very, very cool. It's part of the story. Exodus 38, uh, verse 8. They made the bronze basin and its bronze stand from the mirrors of the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So this is cool, and it's kind of it's actually deeper than when it first appears. <clears throat> According to the, the verse, there were women who served at the entrance to that tent that we saw, right? At the very entrance. While it doesn't tell us what they specifically did, what their role was, I read some comment, uh, commentaries that they likely greeted people. They cared for the tent, like even the outsides, helped mend it. But what's cool, really, really cool, what they gave. They, had, they didn't have mirrors like we have now. They had brass, and they polished it so it had a shine. And you could see yourself in it. So instruments that they used to look at their own beauty, imperfections, very small imperfections, but imperfections. They gave those up to make a basin for washing away sin. They freely gave what they used to gaze at themselves so their own people could wash and get closer to God. Right? That's very, very cool. So here's, here's how this all starts to apply to Jesus Christ. Right? What God was doing with the Israelites in the desert, beginning with the law first, which the law showed people their sin. Right? And he, he, this is no joke. He wrote it in stone. So they can't change it. So it would last. Right? Then, once the people became aware of their sin, they needed a way to start to address that. This is where the tabernacle came in. And as they, again, as we said, we, as they approached the tabernacle from the outside, they encountered a wall. The wall separated the entire world from the inside. Once you enter that, the first thing you encounter was the altar of sacrifice. This is where sin was, started, was atoned for. This is where the debt was beginning to get paid. 
Something had to give its life to pay that penalty for sin. Once, the, once you pass the altar of sacrifice, then again, it's the wash basin. But since the sacrifice didn't completely remove the sin, the priests had to further clean themselves so they wouldn't die. And once inside the main tabernacle, which is in, he, in here, that's where you get the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. It's where the Ark of the Covenant sat. And only the high priest, only one person, one time a year, after even more special washing and special clothes, was allowed to enter there for a very brief period. And guess what happened if they didn't, that person didn't follow the instructions to a T? They died. So everything we just discussed, this whole thing, is God laying the foundation for humanity to know its sin, to admit it, and to begin to atone and wash away for it. Basically to take responsibility. But here's the key. None of it was ever permanent, was it? None of it ever worked completely. People always had to bring more sacrifices. There wasn't just a one and done. The priests... Every time they went, tried to go past it, they had to wash. What happens if they didn't wash? They washed yesterday, but not today. And the reason for this is two-part. Number one, no matter what we did, our, no matter what we do, no matter what they did, our sin was never totally removed. And number two, the second reason is, no matter what we did to address what we did yesterday or the day before, we're going to do something today or tomorrow. We're going to have sin again. We always seem to exist in this place where we were never quite good enough and we were never going to be good enough. And let's be honest, that's a tough topic to talk about because who likes to admit that they're a sinner? Especially in this world today. And we always fall short that way. But yet that's exactly what God was calling the world to do, specifically through his people. That's what the whole book of Exodus is about. Now, if you're f familiar with the writings of Paul, he's a guy who wrote most of the New Testament, he wrote a lot of really, really good stuff. But on this particular subject of sin, he stands out, I think, in my opinion, because he does such a good job of highlighting his own struggle with sin. And, and I use that word struggle, right? And we could really learn from him. And there's a passage I want to read. It's from Romans chapter 7, 18 to 19. This is good stuff. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. This is a guy writing most of the New Testament says that. Anybody write part of the Bible? Me neither. Look what he said. I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is my sinful nature. For I have a de the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do this I keep on doing. So he's honest. He says, this is, the, this is the good stuff. This is what I want to do. I really want to do this. But this is the stuff I kind of keep always falling back on. That's what I do. And the reason I do that is because of my sinful nature. I'm a human. Each one of us has a sinful nature. And the term sinful nature means we naturally rebel against God. Now, ha have, a, have a religious discussion with someone and, and say, hey, you rebel against God. We're going to say, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't rebel. That's a heavy word. I don't go that far. But the truth is, if we have the choice between following God's laws all the time and doing what we want, where's everybody going to end up eventually? Now, we may go back over here every once in a while on Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, between 7 and 8, and then come back. We're human, right? 
But even if we don't consciously out loud say, I'm rebelling, I'm doing what I want, that's what we do. So whether it doesn't matter if we admit it or not. It didn't matter if the Israelites admitted their sin. It existed. To try to deny that or argue otherwise is just not truthful. And on that same side of the coin, instead of outright rebelling against God, what also happens is we can take part of what God said, part of the Bible, part of his laws, parts of his, parts of his teaching, and use the stuff that we like and leave out the stuff we don't. This happens a lot, especially today. You can see this with the prosperity gospel. You guys know about that? You can see this with Christian nationalism. Look throughout the history of Christianity, and you're going to see that Christians, people said that call themselves Christians, did some really awful things believing that they were right. In the 1500s, as the Bible was translated into English for the first time, and people started to be able to read, this was in Europe, started to be able to read for themselves, you know, they could see what Jesus actually said and did. And these people learned that Jesus and the disciples were baptizing adults. Adults would admit, say, I have sinned. They would repent of their sins, and then they'd be baptized. And they realized, well, as I was baptized as an infant, I didn't make my own choice. I didn't repent before I was baptized. I want to do that now. So we had groups of people that would go down to the edge of the water. They would repent of their sins, and they would get baptized. And they came to be called Anabaptists, which meant re-baptizers. That's where the Baptist movement came from. The established churches at the time, mostly Roman Catholic, but there were some Protestants in there. When they learned about this, they were outraged. And when the people who were rebaptized refused to repent, the church said, if it's water you want, it's water you're going to get. And quite a few people, those were, were drowned by the church. Simply because they read what Jesus and the disciples did and wanted to do it themselves. And the reason I share that is there are many, many ways... We can rebel against God. Sometimes it's just through anger, lust, hate, refusal to forgive. But we can also twist the church, Christ's church, sometimes in big ways, some ways, sometimes in small ways. But no matter what, it always comes down to admitting our sin. So I want you to keep this in mind because we're going to read something heavy that Jesus just, not just said, that Jesus said in Matthew 7. And it really can take on a new meaning when we look at the full spectrum of sin. It's Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Now pause that. Don't read any further. That sounds like people in the Christian church. Who casts out demons? Who does miracles thinking they're doing People within the Christian church. And then Jesus said, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. What does he say? You workers of lawlessness. Because this is interesting because what Jesus is describing here is a situation similar to the tabernacle. The wall outside the tabernacle was essentially an area of lawlessness. The only way to get closer to God is to go through the process of admitting your sin, atoning for it, washing it away, coming face to face with it. Kind of like the process of getting to heaven. And the only way to enter the tabernacle or to get into heaven, as we know, is to do the will of the Father. The will of the Father. What's his will? To obey his law. To get into heaven, 
the way to get into heaven has nothing to do with working miracles or casting out demons, does it? That's a work. That's works. And the, but the people who did that thought that that counted for something, didn't they? They really thought that. They were yelling out to Jesus, but look at what I did. Look at my resume. Look at the stuff I did. But it doesn't count. And you'll notice Jesus doesn't disagree with them that they did those things. Yeah, you did those things. It appears to affirm, yes, that happened, but does it count? No. Why not? The only way to get to heaven is to deal with your sin, to admit that you're a sin, repent, follow Jesus, and follow the path he laid out, which means we have to be under the law and guilty of our sin. See, when Jesus rebuked those people, those specific people in Matthew 7, he called them workers of lawlessness. In other words, they didn't put themselves under the law. They didn't think everything they did was wrong. There were certain areas of the gospel they liked, like a cafeteria. I like this. I like this. I definitely like that. I don't like that. I don't like that. They didn't approach the tabernacle as one with sin to have all their sin removed. That's key. The only way to approach God is through being found guilty of the law, all of it, and then go through the process of being redeemed, which is through Jesus Christ. Now, this is where it's really, really, really good news for us. Because Jesus came to this earth, because he became that sacrifice for us. He took the place of that animal in the tabernacle. Because he died on the cross, he permanently washed away our sins. Therefore, today, when we repent, when we choose to be baptized, we're going through that process that God started so long ago with the Israelites. That is that we're under the law, we're guilty, but we admit it and we want to do better because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And he's the one that we follow. When we have faith in him, true faith, our sins are washed away completely, permanently, for good. And therefore, now we can approach God. There's nothing standing in our way. Remember when Jesus died on the cross? What did it say happened to the temple curtain at the temple, the main temple in Jerusalem? Ripped in two. There was no longer any separation between God and his people. So that's what, that started at least 1,300 years before that time. And when Jesus died, he fixed that permanently. Now we can approach God. And guess what we don't have to worry about? An angel with a flaming sword. But it's true. I know it really is. There's no altar of sacrifice. There's no wash basin made from mirrors. Just straight to God our Father because of what Jesus did. And that is good news. Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Father, tonight the lessons of the tabernacle and the need for sin to be removed ring true today just as much back then. But thankfully today we have a reason to rejoice. Your son Jesus took on all the responsibility for the law. He fulfilled the law perfectly and then became the once and for all sacrifice that removed the stain of sin forever. What more can we do than rejoice? And for the rest of our lives, say thank you over and over and over. Father, we are your people. We belong to you. Because of all you've done for us, we wish to give back to you. Use us as you see fit. Use this church as you see fit. Give us opportunities to use your gifts to glorify you and make your name known. Father, again, again, we say thank you for all you've done for us and thank you for sending your son to save us. In his name we pray.
Amen. Amen.